Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to episode three of the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 weeks, or rather 126 plus weeks, as we have discussed it amongst ourselves and have decided that we're going to be covering the specials and annuals as well, wherever they fit in continuity. But first, this week in episode three, we are looking at Excalibur number three, Moving Day, originally published in December 1988. The creative team is Chris Claremont on writing, Alan Davis on penciling and plotting, Paul Neary on inks, Glynis Oliver on colors, Lois Buhalis on lettering, fill-in letterer this month, and Terry Kavanaugh on editing. We have won battles against armies, and our one man defeats all my knights. He's a mighty opponent. This is another one of our jammed packed issues. Most of them have been in the early um, going of Excalibur, but this one perhaps in particular. So we've got a lot of stuff to talk about. And we also have our first guest on the pod who I will introduce in a moment. But first, we'll introduce the usual core team, starting with myself. I am Dr. Anna Papard. I'm a person who writes and talks about comics and pop culture, especially representations of gender and sexuality therein. I'm the editor of a recently released academic anthology called Super Sex, Sexuality, Fantasy, and the Superhero. But of course, my most important job most relevant to this podcast is being Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager. I am joined as always by Mav, if you'd like to introduce yourself. I'm just always curious if you're going to like, you know, when's the last time you filled a question from the Tonight Show for Kurt Wagner? You know, the- <laughs> <laughs> my name is Christopher Maverick. You can call me Mav. I am a PhD student, adjunct professor, I guess expert on uh, pop culture of the 20th century. I specialize in television, comics, movies, movies and portrayals of gender, sexuality, race, and class therein throughout, you know, uh, the kinds of books like Excalibur, funny books and professional wrestling and in uh, movies and stuff like that. So I have a very vested interest in in this sort of thing. And I am excited to talk about this one because it's a weird one. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. A- Andrew, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Dr. Andrew DeMann. I'm a lecturer at St. Jerome's University, uh, and I'm the project lead of the Claremont Run, which is a currently largely Twitter-based um, micro-publishing thing about Claremont. <laughs> and I'm also really excited about this issue because I think this is one of the best single issues. Oh my goodness. Um, counterintuitively, so that'll be fun. That is, I do want to hear your argument about that. Um, something that Andrew and I always keep forgetting to plug is that we have another podcast as well called Three Panel oh, Contrast, so yeah. in which we, and Matt has a podcast as well called Vox Popcast. Um, but we like these things when we post, um, we, 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 we post the episodes to our website but we should still be recommending these things on mic as well. Um, so oh, yeah, watch our, l- listen to our other shows. We're great other places too. Yeah, and we don't, we don't always just talk about Excalibur. It's just we we had so much Excalibur that we wanted to know. Well, actually, behind the scenes, what happened was we were talking about Excalibur on Andrew and I's pod, Three Panel Contrast, and Mav was like, do you ever have guests on the pod? I really want to talk about Excalibur. And it became yeah. this long, long like message chain of like, I don't know, is that actually a good idea? I kind of want to do it. And this is like months ago and it became this podcast (laughs) why don't we just why don't we just read all of them that sounds like a great idea sounds like a perfect idea and you know we're on issue three and it still seems like a good idea at this point so we'll see what happens when we make it to issue 75 but as i mentioned (laughs) let's not let's not doom ourselves before we get there as i mentioned we have our first guest on the pod this week and we are joined by brad
Brad Mendenhall. Welcome, Brad. Hey, everyone. Uh, real excited to be here, uh, and I am honored to be the first guest. Uh, I am the uh, host and co-founder of the Cosmic Geppetto Podcast, a pop culture show where we talk to cool people about cool stuff. Both Andrew and Anna have been on uh, recent episodes. They both brought the goods, um, <laughs> and I had so much fun talking with them, and uh, I'm really excited to be joining you guys for uh, this, uh, this little adventure. There's so many things about Excalibur that I enjoyed during the initial run. Yeah, I, want, I wanted to ask that. you because you were so, like, I pitched you the pod when I was on your pod because we were just getting rid of, we were sort of still in the planning stages. And I was like, you know, I'm doing this new pod. You should come on it. And you were very excited. When I sent out the thing of who wants to be on an episode, you're like, I'm grabbing the first episode available. So this is clearly <laughs> a series that you really like. So so what is your history with Excalibur, Brad? Like, how long ago did you read it? Like, why are you a particular fan of this series? Um, tell us a little bit about your your Excalibur origin story. I was a fan of Excalibur before it was even Excalibur. I, I was a big fan of the Chris Claremont run on Uncanny X-Men, uh, and I was I was in deep. I read all the annuals and spinoff series and everything, and I remember there was a, specifically a great Uncanny X-Men annual that very much, I think, was a precursor to this. I don't know if you've talked about it, but they had this great issue oh, of Uncanny X-Men, an annual where it, was, uh, it had this similar creative team, and Megan and uh, Captain Britain were visiting the X-Men, and an alien came and X-Men teamed together to then to break through his castle to it was just very cool and it was very much Claremont you could see him doing something very different because it was this fantasy sci-fi but very British feel that he was leaning into and then um, not too long after that was when Kurt and Kitty and Colossus as well although it took him a while to join Excalibur when they got hurt and I was so excited it's like okay when are they going to come back when are they coming back and Claremont took quite a while to make that happen and then when they announced Excalibur and this you know amazing combat Claremont with you know a very different artist than he, you're used to him working with I mean again I know they had worked together on an odd issue of X-Men here or there and that annual but it, it was such a different feel and I, I read it from the beginning I remember buying that that first issue which was more of a graphic novel and just being hypnotized by it and it was so great and uh and this I, I I'm I'm in agreement with the previous statement this is I think one of the best single issues of this series and I know it's a lot of setup but it's also a great example of what 80s comics was like because it was very self-contained. I mean, it was obviously setting up stuff for future arcs, but it still had this great, like, 10-page action scene that was very satisfying and a lot of fun with a class, you know, with the classic X-Men villain and the Juggernaut. And then all, so it had that great action stuff and then the great soap opera stuff that Claremont did very well. So it was just so much fun. And uh, when I found out that uh, you guys were doing this, and I'm a, I'm a fan of Andrew and Anna, uh, and... Uh, <laughs> I plan on becoming a, a, a fan of Mav as well. Uh, and <laughs> I'm here. Hi. <laughs> no, we've not met before, so um, it's perfectly fine. <laughs> nice to meet you. So uh, I, I just it just seemed perfect. It's like people that I really like very much talking about something I ver I like very much. Uh, so I, I can't. What a great way to spend an afternoon. Aww. No, no, Andrew, you must know. Is or is Brad talking about the New Mutants annual? Possibly is it New Mutants annual? Yeah, yeah, there's, there's two, two in mutants. quick succession. So there's New yeah, Mutants new annual. Mutants annual volume one two number two and then x-men annual 10 which okay. is um a very sort of marvel uk focused story but illustrated by art adams where new mutants annual 2 was illustrated by um davis okay mm -hmm. yeah that makes no, sense no, that makes no. sense there was um it, it wasn't a it wasn't an art adams one i know that one that was awesome though where the new mutants became the x-men i think it might have been a year after that was, was it drawn it by was, davis yeah it was drawn by davis yeah, it was yeah. x-men yeah. annual that's 11 that's new mutants annual 2 or x-men annual 11 it could 11, be yeah. it was x X-Men Annual 11. Okay. okay, that's a great one. That's a that's a legendary mm -hmm. story. It was so it was so good and it was Wolverine at his best. Yes. And then a very neat, cool use of Storm and I know Andrew you're a Storm fan. I am. Uh, <laughs> and it was cool because it was a view of Storm that you didn't see very often and uh it, it was just such a cool issue. So um yeah. Yeah, it, great character work. So did you start buying Excalibur sort of as it was coming out or did you read the series sort of retrospectively? I I read 
it as it was coming out. Another old, another old Excalibur <laughs> head. Yeah, like I didn't mean old as in age wise, but just old as in having a deep veneration for this series. Mav and Andrew also read it as it was coming out, and I read it many years mm-hmm. later. It's okay. I'm just shaking my cane at you. A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think any of us personally identify as particularly young on this podcast, although we shouldn't give that away to the listeners. But we've already said that you know some of us are reading these comics as they came out, so I think the cat's already out of the bag there. But um, let's start. I'm, a, let, I'm eternally 19, so you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not counting my age in the pandemic era, that's for sure. So um, <laughs> let's uh, start with some issue summary and then sort of get into the conversation of this issue. And we can go back to some sort of first impressions and stuff there. But just so we're all on the same page, because I know many of our listeners possibly haven't read this at all or haven't read it since 1988. So we'll start there. So Excalibur number three, Moving Day, opens with the very British crime lord known as Vixen and a squad of very modly attired goons breaking into an ultra maximum security prison known as Crossmore to break out an unnamed prisoner who turns out to be missing. It's a trap. But Vixen and co promptly turn lemons into lemonade by freeing longtime X-Men foe the Juggernaut who once freed smashes through the walls of the prison creating a massive prison break. Vixen's gang escapes in the confusion with jetpacks. It's pretty awesome. In the meantime, the army arrives at the prison and so does Excalibur. Captain Britain aka Brian Braddock gets his butt handed to him by Juggernaut while Shadowcat aka Kitty Pride and her trusty dragon Lockheed easily recapture a car load of escapees. What Kitty does with intangibility powers and dragon fire, Nightcrawler, aka Kurt Wagner, does the mostly old-fashioned way, subduing another group of escapees with some acrobatic hand-to-hand fighting moves and a cute smile, of course. When Megan discovers her bow being brutalized by Juggernaut, she steps in to save him, growing to an enormous size capable of matching Juggernaut's power. Unfortunately, she doesn't get a chance to test her might as the rest of the team arrives and Kurt, Kitty, and Phoenix, aka Rachel Summers, who have some experience handling Juggernaut, quickly work together to stop Megan and subdue him telepathically. Brian and Megan kiss, and Kurt teases Kitty that she's sad the fight is over. Turns out she is, because according to her, anything's better than moving. From the aftermath of the prison bake, we jump to an abandoned warehouse in Newcastle, where a sci-fi nerd with some kind of homemade alien detector and a colander on his head named Rupert Holloway discovers the disembodied robot head we've seen a couple of times by now. The robot creates a dimensional portal which transports Rupert to the futuristic bedchamber of Opal Loon Satur 9. We will learn more about her in future issues. The next day at the Braddock Lighthouse on England's west coast, Excalibur are moving in. Kitty and Kurt have a surprising amount of things, and Kitty has a nasty cold. Kitty's mood isn't improved when Brian drops a box containing software she developed with the now-deceased Doug Ramsey, aka Cypher. Everyone hustles the boxes into the lighthouse before the storm blows in, which Brian claims will last a day. It lasts a week. Trapped in the lighthouse with Kurt doing calisthenics on the floor above and the still-sick Kitty occupying the only bathroom, Brian begins to wonder if letting Megan invite the team to live in the lighthouse was a mistake. When Rachel throws his whiskey into the ocean, he knows it's a mistake. He flies into a rage, leaving Megan to be comforted by Kurt, who hugs her to his chest in the rain. It's very romantic. But wait, there's more. In the basement of the lighthouse, Kitty comes face to face with a dinosaur doppelganger of herself, and Brian meets his ex-flame Courtney Ross in London to complain about Megan being too devoted to him. But when Brian finally returns to the lighthouse, the team agrees to try and make it work. The issue ends with Kurt getting everyone to bring it all in for a little sports cheer. It's kind of adorable, and everybody smiles. So, a lot of stuff, a lot of setup, but two of you now have said that this is one of your favorite Excalibur issues, which really intrigues me. It's an issue that I like a lot, and yet a favorite issue, that's like a lot. So what is it, I'll start with you, Andrew, like what is it, like what is your argument for this being sort of one of your favorite issues or one of the best issues of Excalibur? Uh, Well, I'll start by picking up on Brad's point. The fight scene is amazing. It is a situation where one, the fight is actually tactical. So like there's a rational strategy involved. Like we always have that thing in Marvel Comics where Cyclops is, we're told he's a brilliant leader, but his strategy is usually to have everyone run at the bad guys uh, simultaneously. <laughs> and shoot, yeah. run at them at the same time and shoot your power that way. And it works, <laughs> but... Cyclops plan, yes. So you got that, you've got really good visual inventiveness on the part of Davis in that fight scene. You never lose track of all these different pieces. And you got like some cool Looney Tune shots of like Brian in that three panel sequence being knocked miles away by Juggernaut. You've got great character development. You introduce all the characters really successfully in that battle scene. Like for me, that's a better pilot than issues one, two, or zero uh, as an introduction to the characters. And then as I said, the character work after that is great. It, it, it's subtle. It, it opens pathways for future issues. There's a lot happening in this text. To me, this is Excalibur at its peak in terms of what that book does best. Oh, wow. Yeah, do you agree with that, Brad? Are those some of the reasons why this is your favorite issue? This issue really did set up some of the dynamics with the characters. The issue and the special leading up to this, everyone sort of got along. There actually wasn't even, because 
because they were they were very action heavy, you didn't have quite the, the interpersonal relationships weren't developed. You were starting to see that development. You were starting to figure out where everyone belonged in the team. So you had Brian, especially who who was an overpowered, too good looking putt, <laughs> <laughs> which which really works because you can't have somebody that tall, that blonde, that blue eyed, that powerful. And if he's too perfect, well, great. Then you have a mix of Captain America and Superman, and that can work. But with a team book like this, that could be really challenging. And it's like, okay, this is a guy who's used to being the best looking and the most powerful. And he's going to keep running into stuff where he can't beat the juggernaut. <laughs> and mm-hmm. he's not a very good boyfriend. So one of those things where he, he's not a very good boyfriend because he never really had to worry about being a good boyfriend. He was just rich and good looking and tall. So... <laughs> <laughs> So his entire life, he's been told you're dreamy, you're perfect, you're funny, you're all these things. He's not. He's none of those things. (laughs) (laughs) And... Uh, so they were setting up those dynamics. Plus, I think the Juggernaut is a really great <laughs> bad guy. He's a classic X-Men villain. And it's funny because it also shows just how impressive Excalibur is because Juggernaut wasn't the biggest, cha- wasn't even that big a challenge. No. <laughs> you know, Phoenix, you know, Rachel just sort of shows up and is like, hey, guess what I do? It was like, oh, yeah. crap, and knocks him out. Good scene. <clears throat> and, you know, there have been many, many issues of uncanny x-men up to this point where entire teams couldn't knock him down and i know it, it was a little bit of a cheat because he didn't have the helmet and he was vulnerable to psychic attacks and stuff but it really showed it's like no these guys are excalibur is a pretty impressive team and as andrew pointed out they had strategy and claremont i i don't know why he did it so well this time he's not always a great strategy guy in his stories but he really knocked it out of the park with this so it was so much fun and gave everyone a chance to have their shining moments megan you know buffing up and showing how powerful she could be and kurt with this great acrobatic fight scene where he barely even touched some people but he was just like really smart and athletic and <clears throat> and having so much fun and the, having so much fun and then kitty and i know this is something i think you want to talk about a little later kitty using her powers in very different ways Mm -hmm. um which is something that claremont also was good at because claremont didn't always like point and shoot powers he liked you know inventive powers that were used different ways and kitty was always i think a very good example of that and this showed us that he was going to try to do more with that yeah yeah i do like i like all those things that you're saying about the introduction of the characters and i mean it does really remind me of i guess it's issue one where we sort of have that that inter- that similar kind of technique but i see what you're saying andrew that perhaps it's like even refined further in this particular issue well let's talk about let's talk about the well did you sorry bad did you have like a first impressions thing that we should go back to uh well i mean they both largely covered it i, I mean also one of my favorite issues i would argue that pages five through ten of this comic are the most important in the the entire run of Excalibur. Oh it my literally god! Tells okay, you well, ev- I'm glad we came back to you. My yeah. goodness. <laughs> well, but it's for exactly the reason that uh, that Brad just said. It tells you everything that you need to know about each each member of this team from the second Juggernaut shows up. Looks at, I mean, okay, I guess you could start the panel before when when Captain Britain punches him in the nose. Mm-hmm. Juggernaut doesn't care because he's the Juggernaut and some of my favorite dialogue ever nice punch cute suit you the local good guy like that's <laughs> that's what that's what juggernaut gathers from just looking at him and then brian and i love that they give him his font they they give him his yeah. logo font it's i am captain britain and um and, and juggernaut's like yeah figures <laughs> it's, it's literally like you know juggernaut just has this conversation with him because kane marco is not the he's not set on world domination he's just trying to get out he's sized up captain britain realized that captain britain thinks that like brad said he's the tall beautiful guy he thinks that he's got the upper hand here and and juggernaut's like oh i can get rid of you whenever you want so i'm going to have a, a pleasant conversation with you because i'm a nice guy <laughs> um, i i love that but i love that brian's entire act here is to just be the hero that he you know he is you called him superman he is being superman he is just doing the thing that heroes do kane is unimpressed punches him 14 miles away which is brilliant i love i i remember reading this when i was 14 and just laughing for five solid minutes at that punch because it's hilarious but after that everything that happens after that we've talked before on the show on on this show about who's the real leader and you guys talked about you know they he they have a plan for this fight i don't think brian knew the plan i think kurt and (laughs) i think kurt 
and and Rachel and Kitty knew the plan because they know how to beat the juggernaut. They fought the juggernaut many, many times. They know exactly how he's got no helmet. They know exactly how this is going to go. But they're like, oh, Brian, you go be the distraction. There's even a point where where, you know, Kitty's just sitting there tickling Lockheed. They're not really worried about this. And she has a conversation with Rachel and they're like, yeah, look, it's, you know, Brian's best suited to deal with this for now. It's like he can keep him busy. You're the decoy, the distraction. Give Brian something to do to get him out of the way while we go rescue people who need rescuing that's and then once they're once they've done the important work rachel shows up and then the fight with juggernaut takes one panel Mm -hmm. oh you're phoenix uh yeah yeah guess what i do oh crap bam that's it (laughs) that's the entire fight because juggernaut knows that he can't beat a psychic and and rachel could have gone and and taken him down whenever she wanted to they had other things to do you know even when megan goes to fight him kitty's like no 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 that's we've got a plan for this the x-men know how to handle a juggernaut it's fine. So I think it I think it just establishes the entire team dynamic in five pages and colors how you view them for the entire rest of the series. Yeah, yeah. No, I totally don't disagree with that. I mean, the thing I kept thinking about as we've been talking about this fight scene in this issue is just, well, what is the main conflict in this issue then? Because we get the fight scene over with early, right? It's the first thing in the Page 10. it's the first <laughs> thing in the issue. And then we got the rest of the issue. So if mm-hmm. this issue has a central conflict, what is the central conflict? It's not this fight with Juggernaut. That no. just sets up the rest no. of everything. It's really backwards, right? The way often in sort of a Claremontian, you know, sort of style book where we have kind of the interpersonal relationships and the superheroics blended to some degree, right? We have kind of the fights extending from the personalities. But here we have mm-hmm. it's starting with a fight that illustrates the relationships between the characters and then we get the sort of more of the focus on the domestic space right which is an interesting i like that flip around right Mm -hmm. there's a good line by john byrne where he says if claremont had his way every comic book he wrote would just be two people having a stroll through the village and a conversation and that kind of happens in this issue (laughs) i think the fight is their job so this is um i'm gonna fast forward several 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 years there's a really good series matt fractions hawkeye and the tagline for hawkeye is clint is a is an avenger this is what he does when he's off work Mm -hmm. you know and that's what's going on here we see them fight the juggernaut because this is excalibur's job the job is you go to work and you take down juggernaut and then that's not the interesting story yeah then they go home story is the interesting story is the relationship between these characters like when we when, when you watch the office the office isn't about selling paper like that's that's just a backdrop to give a story when you watch cheers it's not about you know running a bar the interesting thing is the relationship between these characters who work at this bar or the characters who work at dunder mifflin on the office or if you a serious thing if you watch Grey's anatomy or er or any hospital drama you're not really watching it to learn about how you do heart surgery there is a backdrop of this is their job and what i want to know about is the relationship between meredith and, and mcdreamy that's the story right the story is is their relationships at play so in this particular issue i'm giving you who these people are through this fight now that that's out of the way let's just be done with all the fight crap and let's talk about the meat of excalibur which is how these people get along with each other yep. well there, there was also a thing and maybe this is the reason why i liked it so much it struck me very much like tom defalco amazing spider-man where uh there was this great run of Amazing Spider-Man uh, where Tom DeFalco wrote it and Ron Friends drew it, where that was often how those issues would be framed, where at the beginning, there'd be a couple guys doing a robbery and Spider-Man shows up and he webs him up and he punches some people. And it really doesn't have anything to do with the issue as a whole, but then you would have this really cool dynamic artwork and this fun action sequence. And then the rest of it would be, okay, well, I, does Mary Jane know that he's Spider-Man? Is he going to make his rent? And all these uh, soap opera ish and sort of dramatic dramatic dialogue that he would have and it was funny where you would have that fun framing of okay we're, we're going to give you all the punching and the whams and the bams and everything at the very beginning but then the rest of the issue will be a very attractive guy in a double-breasted suit talking with a beautiful woman who's almost <laughs> supernaturally gorgeous and having them walk and talk and you know him complaining about how his other his talking to his beautiful ex-girlfriend about how his beautiful current girlfriend is too too much in love with him <laughs> wow, something, what something we can all relate to yes yeah. <laughs> 
Um, so I think it, it was also part of what 80s comics were like, where I know comics have changed, where everything's about these six issue arcs and the action's very different and the stories go a lot longer and issues aren't often that satisfying to read an individual issue. But, you know, in the in the 80s, no, they, they would very much want to have a succinct story that you could tell in one issue, which they did. I mean, the conflict between the characters is pretty much resolved by the end of the issue pretty quickly and you know that they're setting stuff up to be dealt with in the future but they still had you know brian comes back and he has a change of heart i don't know if it's 100 percent earned but <laughs> that's okay because you know it's going to be a problem but and the next issue would be the next story and you know that's not really how comics work anymore because they like to have the six to twelve issue arcs because they can get repackaged and all the other things that go on in the yeah. business part of comics so it, it's it's a neat this issue for me was a really neat sort of Traveling back in time is like, oh, this is what comics were like, where uh, you would have that big, boom, loud, bombastic action at the beginning, and then equally bombastic and big personal conflicts to make the meat of the story. Yeah, I mean, I definitely, I miss a lot of the time, and it's not that every modern comic is like this, but sometimes when I am reading sort of current X-Men, and there's been some exciting stuff going on in current X-Men, obviously, but at the same time, I sometimes get to the end of an issue and I'm just like, ah, I just, I was missing that slowdown, you know, that you get in the second half of this issue where we just see them in the place that they live, having day-to-day -day interactions, and that is so what draws me kind of into the world of Excalibur and one of the reasons that I particularly love it. I, I feel like we haven't heard from you in a while, Andrew, about this. So maybe I will put this question to you because I kind of want to get us back to this question of like, what is the central conflict of this issue? But maybe we can get at that by talking about kind of this domestic kind of quality of it. So we keep bringing up this phrase, this phrase genre bending for Excalibur. And, you know, I think that that's used to great effect here again, where we get this kind of rapid back and forth between mystery and sci-fi and action and comedy and romance. And Mav's also making me think about how how much Excalibur is kind of like a sitcom as well, which is an interesting direction we could take yeah. this conversation. But what I particularly love about this issue, and so much of what you've all brought up is, is related to this, is that focus on the domestic space, which we've been talking about, right? So less than half of the issue is at the lighthouse, but it does a lot with that time in the lighthouse. And like, so I want to ask you guys, like, what's appealing about bringing us into this world in this way on focusing on this domestic space? You've both talked about how there were some precedents in the superhero genre. I mean, the precedent that I I would bring up would be Fantastic Four, sort of their interactions in, in the tower that they all used to live in, right? So they had a lot of sort of interactions with the domestic and the fantastic in that comic, sort of as the comic that starts the Marvel Universe. So there's some precedent for this. And obviously another precedent is X-Men comics, them living in the mansion together. Although I always felt in Uncanny that there was never enough of that, strangely. I often did want to see them just having a movie night or hanging out at the mansion. And sometimes it was just barreling so far ahead into outer space or whatever that we didn't get as many many of those moments as I think I personally would have wanted, but Excalibur with it being a small team and it's confined to this very small space. That's one of the sort of focuses yeah. of the conflict here. Like, do you see that a little bit differently than uncanny sort of like Andrew, like sort of, you know, a focus on this more confined domestic space and a real effort to focus on that space. Yeah. And I think you've, you've said it exactly there with the, the idea of confinement, right? Mm -hmm. This episode is about establishing that domestic space mm -hmm. uh, and the problems of, you know, trying to be, a found family within that space. And the thing I find really interesting is because within that as your conflict, you're setting up Brian as the heavy. Uh, he's obviously the jerk, but note that a lot of his perspective drives the sort of um, pace of the story in this issue. So it's Brian waking up to Nightcrawler, making up too much noise and kitties in the bath and all these annoyances happening to him. So he's almost like a domestic anti-hero, which I think is really cool in terms of creating some complexity in that relationship. Because uh, Brian is a jerk, right? He's obviously a jerk. He's a character you love to hate. But at the same time, he's portrayed in all these sympathetic ways because of his complex backstory and because of, again, just the protagonist effect and putting us in his shoes as much as um, Claremont and Davis do in this issue. Yeah, and I mean, because we do, we have been talking a lot and we will continue to talk a lot about Brian being a jerk, right? And yet there are elements of the story, right, that sort of bring you into his headspace and sort of, if not like empathize with him, certainly have a degree of sympathy for him. I also just have to mention that he is easy on the eyes and 
they do a lot of him like walking around the light. He's not really my type. I'm a nightcrawler girl. We all know that. And yet at the same time, when I picture Brian Braddock, I 100% picture him drawn by Alan Davis, shirtless, wearing those green sweatpants, wandering around the lighthouse. Like that is the automatic picture that goes into my head. And I'm like, I don't mind like just watching him walk around. It, it looks very nice. I mean, you know, again, not really my type. I like, you know, sort of a, a few too many muscles for me. But at the same time, he's definitely aesthetically pleasing. There's a gaziness about him in this particular issue. I do want to point out this is because I've been hard on him on all of our previous episodes. I don't <laughs> like Brian. I mean, I I very much am a okay, yeah, the guy's a jerk. He's an abusive jerk. I like hating him, as you as you said. Yeah. I will give him credit in in this particular issue. In Excalibur, Volume 1, Number 3, Brian really does nothing wrong. He's kind of in the right for most of what actually happens in the context of just this issue. He's annoyed because his girlfriend asked three people he barely knows to move in with him without telling him first. Mm -hmm. That's weird. <laughs> like, I, I understand. Like, if I if I came home one day and my wife's like, oh, yeah, here are our new roommates. <laughs> we met them last week. <laughs> you know, like, that would be weird. I I, under I understand the frustration there. It's, uh, you know, we have one bathroom and there are three strangers living with me. This is odd. I'm trying to think of, I'm like, a joke, too, about, like, where we found these strangers because it would be somewhere wacky. Like, <laughs> these aren't just yeah. strangers from work these are like strangers we met like after the concert or like something right he, he or during kind... a podcast about excalibur <laughs> yeah oh don't I look mean... out your door right now mav do not look out your door yeah. Like he he kind of knows Kitty, as we know from previous previous episodes. He doesn't really know Kurt. He doesn't know Rachel at all. She came from Rachel's some girl who fell out of the sky last week, mm -hmm. literally. So he doesn't know these people. He's, you know, they're kind of work friends that like he hasn't been working with that long. And then interestingly enough, not only am I annoyed because they're taking up my bathroom and everything, they suddenly the you know, the weird girl that I met last week just decided to stage an intervention for me yeah. and yes i mean yes we as the readers we know that brian drinks too much we know it's a problem rachel met him tuesday <laughs> you know like why are you throwing away all my alcohol that's weird so I, I i get the i get the irritation of it now in context you know for last week we know that brian can be a jerk and we'll be saying that pretty much for the next 125 weeks you know i i get well know, he disappears to... he's not in the title for a while so that'll be a nice break that's true but yeah but here it's just like eh, you know like people moved in and are changing your house and you don't even know them I, I get his irritation so I think that there's a I think this is the one place where you can sort of feel sympathetic for him and again like I said at the beginning I don't think they told him the plan in the fight because oh you could have beat Juggernaut whenever you want why am I punching him what what <laughs> you know they, they used him as the patsy yeah and I mean I think like there's a thing where you can not like a character but still like the character's function in the story right like I don't like yes, him as exactly. a person but I enjoy his oh, function sure. in the story story yeah. right because i can't imagine this story without him and the ways that he's tortured and the ways that he's put upon and it's enjoyable and the fact that he's a jerk <laughs> is part of what makes it enjoyable because i really love seeing all these things happen to brian and him being so ridiculous and that interplay <laughs> with the characters so yeah i just wanted to be clear about like when we're saying we hate brian it, it could sound to certain listeners like why do you read this comic with this character you hate so much and i'm like no but he's a character that you love to hate right yes yeah. absolutely sure he is he, he has a very clear story storyline function i mean brad said it perfectly like brian's biggest the biggest problem in brian's life right now is when these two beautiful women both love me too much my life is hard <laughs> like, like what are you talking about like that's kind of what that's kind of his, his central conflict well and you, you also can't have everyone being the good guy who always does the right thing and you mentioned before hawkeye uh, mm -hmm. in the avengers comics hawkeye's entire purpose was that basically whenever they needed an Avenger to do something that was boring is like okay we need an Avenger who's a pretty good pilot who's a decent inventor but not as smart as Tony Stark but also just to be the jerk mm -hmm. and Hawkeye was always the jerk who would say something snarky and it would contrast well against specifically Captain America because Captain America would be, make the big speech and then Hawkeye would say something sort of douchey in response <laughs> so you always have to have someone as the jerk now Brian was a very different jerk than anyone else because he, he, he wasn't a wisecracker he, he was wasn't dumb it was just a guy who ah you know we, we've all 
worked with or known that guy who was the tallest, the best looking and had the prettiest girlfriend or whatever. And you, you sort of liked seeing that person sort of slip and fall and show his imperfections. And they just really loaded him up with those imperfections <laughs> so we could all enjoy him falling on his face and then prove not to be as smart or as strategic as Kurt, not as powerful as Megan or Phoenix and not being as smart as, uh, as Kitty. So in a lot of ways, even though he's the most powerful in a, in a Superman way, he's also the least of the team. He's kind of like uh, if people play MMOs and you know you have to have different elements on each team and someone says you have to be the tank and you yeah. resent it because you don't play that way. Mm-hmm. Brian doesn't want to be the tank. Brian wants to be the intellectual. He wants he to be wants the to leader. He wants to be the scientist. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And he's clearly frustrated by that role. I mean, do we, we haven't talked about sort of the Britishiness of Excalibur too much lately. I mean, is Brian's British identity part of this? I mean, is there kind of like taken down this sort of yes. British guy that's part of this? Because I think there is, but I'm curious There's a great quote by Alan Davis where he says that Brian's problem is that he suffers from old British fatalism. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Kind of like that. Again, this idea of being put upon, but stiff upper lips suffer through it kind of thing. Mm-hmm. He doesn't want to be Captain Britain, but he, he feels that responsibility and obligation. I mean, yeah, I just feel like we have to think about that context in terms of this being a comic that would have primarily been read by American readers, but that's mobilizing this British context. And again, how different he is in this context versus the British public publishing context is interesting there in terms of, you know, how we're supposed to view this character from one national context to another, right? Well, there's also a little bit of, you know, British monarchy there where Mm -hmm. he was predestined to be Captain Britain when he tried to step away from his birthright it ended up tragic for his uh, sister and the way they have him dressed like with the fancy with the very nice suit and uh, you know it it does very much seem like an aristocracy to him Mm -hmm. and then when you think Mm -hmm. again with it being the American context of wanting to take down that British aristocracy that kind of makes a lot of sense and Courtney fits into that as well too right Right? Someone who's kind of like the equivalent of a duchess. Mm-hmm. She's part of that world, that, that that world of privilege that he could fall into, but he has chosen not to so far. Well, sort of stemming from this question about like the question of like kind of the domestic space, although I actually kind of want to ask you guys a little bit more about that. Is that sort of a, a central hook for all of you with Excalibur? Like that sense that we get of them being in this confined space? Because I definitely love that. I love that sense of them being a group of misfits against the world that are in this lighthouse off the coast of graphically anyway. It seems like the coast of nowhere that, you know, the isolation of that space gives them a real closeness both to each other and to us reading it. Did, like, do you guys sort of feel that effect with this kind of setting and the way it's played in a comic like this? There was a, a long tradition, as you already pointed out, of home bases. So with uh, su- like the Super Friends of DC, you had the Hall of Justice. Uh, you had the Baxter building with the Fantastic Four. You had Batcave. Batcave. But I tell you what, the, the lighthouse was very different. First off, it's visually striking. And like the X-Men mansion uh, was always sort of bland looking. It just looked like sort of whatever the particular artist on that issue thought of as a mansion. And there wasn't anything real distinctive to it. But the lighthouse was very distinctive. And it was also nice because it was small. It wasn't big enough. And, you know, the X-Mansion is huge. Avengers Mansion is is huge and i think there was a little bit of you know living through the characters is like how fun would it be to be in this giant mansion and it's so cool well they didn't do that instead they did is like hey lighthouses are cool they look really neat but actually living in one with other people probably would stink a little bit so you have the cool <laughs> visuals and it's distinctive but you have natural conflict right. rachel and kitty share a bedroom that's how little space mm-hmm. they have because i mean part they, of you know, part of the joy of mm-hmm. like the old x mansion right is that it is so expansive and like oh what other rooms are there and you know who's going to be behind be behind this door or whatever right and we have that a little bit here since we've got a portal in the basement right that leads to other dimensions mm-hmm. and yet again that sense of confinement right going from that expansive mm-hmm. x mansion to this overcrowded lighthouse where they don't even have individual rooms where they're already driving each other crazy after a week we know for a fact and they make it very clear and i think it's important that they make it clear that there is only one bathroom and there's a schedule <laughs> so mm-hmm. i mean it is it seems like a very deliberate choice to do a specific thing with this book in terms of character conflict, right? Right. The X-Mansion is big enough to be a school for however many students we decided we feel like having Mm -hmm. in the storyline this month, right? In the original 
Rowan, there's only five students at all at Xavier's in the original run. But by the time Claremont's doing X-Men, you've got all the X-Men living there. You've got all the new mutants living there. And a few years later, you've got random other mutants who aren't even part of these teams living there. You've got Morlocks in the, you know, like coming in and out. It's clearly expansive. So there's plenty of room. This is a college campus. And yeah, they don't even have their own bedrooms here. I guess there's three bedrooms because Megan and Brian share one. Kitty and Rachel have one floor where they have twin beds. And I guess Kurt has his own somewhere. And that's it. That's that's the space in the lighthouse. They've got a big basement where Kurt's setting up his jungle gym. It is a family having a makeshift family having to deal with the problems that families have to deal with. And not only domestic, but I, I know, Anna, you want to talk about the mundaneness of this issue. They're bad at dealing with the mundane. Yeah. To them, the mundane is, you know, how do we, oh, juggernauts. Um, yeah, they're so good rampaging. at dealing with that. But oh, yeah. well, that's just something that happens once a week. We know how to deal with a juggernaut. We don't know how to deal with a bathroom schedule. <laughs> and that's weird. I mean, it's weird, but that's what makes it interesting. It makes it's interesting because they live in this in this hyper world where they cannot deal with, you know, how do I deal with this very basic relationship that my girlfriend's kind of clingy and I'm kind of standoffish. And like, yeah, yeah, I, yeah I want to talk about that and I want to talk about Kitty's Cold, but just really, really quickly. I like as sort mm-hmm. of like a metaphor or like a meta thing of like the whole X-Men franchise, which the franchise had gotten so expansive and what Excalibur does and the lighthouse really like metaphorizes this is that it creates this confined space separate from the rest of the X-Men books. And I think that that's part of what creates kind of that cultish sense of ownership over this particular series that you can create that special little corner for yourself with this series that perhaps you'd felt lost in sort of the ever-growing expansiveness of the X-Men franchise and yet you have this lighthouse that you can go and be in with these characters over here in this little corner. Anyway, Andrew, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to add to that. I mean, just connecting it to our discussion of genre bending, I think um, the erosion of privacy and putting everyone in a confined space, that's very important to sex farce. Mm. And you can see the narrative in Excalibur emphasizing constantly that their privacy is being inflicted upon, that those boundaries are no longer discreet. Mm-hmm. So we're setting up that, again, sex farce element that means a lot to Excalibur as a book. Yeah, and we get a very, you know, interesting moment in the development of the Kurt, Brian, Megan relationship here, where we see the beginning of Kurt becoming Megan's shoulder to cry on, literally. Yeah. I mean, what goes on with this scene with Kurt and Megan? Why is this scene kind of important? What is this setting up in terms of the dynamic between these characters? Well, I would just say that I I love that it emphasizes the collateral damage that Brian's actions are are causing, um, showcasing Megan's vulnerability and, and giving the team this sort of role of having to constantly pick up the pieces of Brian's mess. So he's hurting the team, not just Megan. Yeah. It becomes a team problem. He's hurting a family because you see this as a sense of his family here, right? Yeah, for sure. Well, but is he is he part of the family yet? Yeah. I mean, we've talked about that a bit. Like he's the brother of someone they know. They don't really know him. And she's dead. They they know they know Betsy, but they don't really know Brian. They've Kitty met him a couple times. Kurt's been in a coma. Rachel has never met him before a week ago. Like, I don't know that they're close to him, which is suddenly they're now, you know, it's sort of moving to college for the first time, right? When you move to college and you move into your freshman dorm, you're now living and sharing spaces with this person you met today. I think there's a lot of that going on. And then that doesn't make him right. I said he did nothing wrong in this issue. I mean, in this issue, right? Because they do know he's an alcoholic. They've only known him a week and it's apparently been a problem it's been a problem to the point where rachel does not blink about just getting rid of all the whiskey she's Mm -hmm. just like screw you dude i'm done you know it's been a week and i'm done with you already so that's you know, I, like there, this is implying a lot of drama that we didn't necessarily see. Mm-hmm. Well, what do, what do well, you make? What do you make of the Brad, Megan, Nightcrawler? Or, sorry, Brad. Sorry, yeah, Brad, you're not part of this triangle, but you know. <laughs> but anyway, what do you make of the the Brian, Megan, Kurt triangle? Are you? <laughs> do you want any of these characters to end up together? No, um, <laughs> that's probably the right answer. <laughs> I like they all were too good for each other. First off, and I know a little bit from the Captain Britain series before this. Brian wasn't interested in to, in, in her until she learned how she could change her appearance to make herself nope. pretty. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then Kurt, his feelings for Megan very much seemed like. He thought she was very nice and very sweet and deserved better, but you don't really see any, you know, what would they have in common? What would they have? 
have to talk about. Kurt, I always thought, was at his best when his romantic entanglement would be with somebody smart who wouldn't put up with his crap and who would call him out on like him being this over-the-top romantic character and the people who would, the, the women who would find it charming but also would tell him to knock it off. He he would, oh, he, I, thought, I always thought he functioned better, somebody who was smart and sort of tough in their own way. And I never really got the impression, the impression I got was it was always supposed to be Brian and Megan, but they threw Kurt in there to be a fly in the ointment. But I, I never had any doubt that when it would all shake out, those two would end up together and Kurt would find somebody who was a better fit for him. No, that doesn't make it a non-interesting story, but I'm just thinking of like, ah, uh, what the hell? Everyone's watched it. Like Friends, for a period of time, for like half a season, Joey decided he was in love with, in love with Rachel. Everybody knew that that wasn't the relationship that was going to be there at the end, but it was an interesting fly in the ointment, two characters who live together or live near each other, who are attractive. Eventually, they're going to maybe have some curiosity about each other. But you never for a moment doubted. It's like, okay, well, Rachel's going to end up with Ross because that's the entire setup of the series. That's how you felt then? That's how you felt like reading it as a kid? Yeah. uh, You know, reading it as a kid, because Megan was so doe-eyed about Brian, I never really bought into, like, it never felt like, it felt like she felt rejected by Brian. So, and she realized Kurt had feelings towards her so she decided to examine that as opposed to Brian was a jerk and she realized how great Kurt was so she wanted to be with Kurt it, it always wow always felt like okay. Kurt was her second choice or somebody who was a more an option that made sense but not who she really had the strong feelings toward that's I find that interesting because I always read it as a kid and I see what you're saying now about like would it have worked between Megan and Kurt no they're very different those characters knowing what happens over the rest of the series I know that they are going to become very different people but but reading it back then, I was sure that, like, I, I believe that I was supposed to be rooting against the lughead quarterback and rooting for Ducky. I mean, that's who. That's who oh, Kurt, don't, right? don't do that to Kurt, please. I, I hate Ducky I, so much. And please don't do that. But, He's not the nice guy. He's better than that. He's better than that. He, he is better than that. But that's the story, right? The story There's is. There's elements of that placed, story, but yes. Right. They have been placed in a John. Fine. We'll make it, we'll make it some kind of wonderful instead, right? Like, but they've made, they've placed them in this john hughes romance where there's a jerky rich dude who you're supposed to root against and you're supposed to root for the regular guy who i think kurt is in this situation and you know megan is only with brian because she's the cheerleader and the cheerleader is supposed to be with the quarterback and that's you know that's the teen romance that you're supposed to be building and i don't see i don't see kurt as joey i see him as the better guy or at least i did then i just but is I, megan so, the cheerleader megan's the cheerleader yeah megan really? Absolutely. I don't read her that way. That's interesting. Oh, okay. Because uh, I guess here is the naive cheerleader. Yeah. Who doesn't yeah, not... know, understand how beautiful she is. Like, uh, what was it? Amanda Seyfried in Mean Girls, yeah. where she was just very, very beautiful, but because she wasn't as smart as the other girls, she didn't seem to realize, oh, I'm actually, I actually look like Amanda Seyfried. So, you know. <laughs> and she's not, and she's not mean. She's, you know, a good example. Like she's, you know, in Mean Girls, you know, she's not mean. She's just caught up in Regina's web, right? Like that's and I, and I think that you're supposed to view Megan that way. Like, I don't think I think Megan's a perfectly nice person. I don't think she's you know, I, mean, I get why you say she's not Kurt's intellectual equal. I get that. I get why she why it wouldn't work out in the long run. But I I do feel like or I did. Actually, I still do because I, I don't like knowing how it turns out. I still feel like it was not a healthy relationship for her. And Kurt's no. attracted to her because Kurt wants to be the knight in shining armor who comes in and saves the cheerleader from her douchey boyfriend that's wow. what he's okay. doing right yeah and that makes complete sense here's the thing it, it's funny because i'm trying to think does kurt really have he kurt really doesn't have a lois lane to his superman of course i say that i i happen to know there might be a uh, nightcrawler expert uh, well, on the call un- unfortunately <laughs> yeah. unfortunately his version of that is his foster sister slash girlfriend um yeah. which yes. you know <laughs> who is going to join excalibur later and we'll get some flashbacks to and this is so hard for me because this story of childhood sweethearts who were teen acrobats together and like fell in love when he revealed his teleporting power by catching her out of the air when she falls and they kiss in the center ring you have no idea how much i want to root for that i want to root for it so hard and then they have to throw this sister thing into it and just like make it so screwed up they could have just been 
and friends, you know, maybe she lived in the next town over or something. And why, 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 why? Because I want to root for it so badly. He keeps coming <laughs> back to her. Girl and like, yeah. She could just be, she could be another girl in the circus and it would have been fine. I know. Yeah. Like, it would have been fine. Have literally be a sister. I know. I know. Believe me. Believe me. <laughs> Nightcrawler fans yeah. just are tortured by that. Believe me. We've got like 50 issues before we get there. <laughs> but yeah, sorry. We derailed kind of the thing. I mean, you know, like I, I agree with what you guys are saying, you know, like in terms of, uh, yeah, I've never really shipped like Kurt and Megan. I like, I would have liked her to have a lot more agency in that relationship for, for me to be able to kind of believe in that as a possible relationship. I have a question and this is, um, this is just a little behind the scenes. When we were talking about offline preparing for this, Andrew, you said something that I never read. You said Megan's supposed to be 17 or 18 here. Yeah. We uh, should according talk to Davis's character Bible. That, yeah. Yes. I I would have I mean now I know she's naive but reading her as a kid and again I'm 14 when I read this issue as a 14 year old I believe Kitty is my age I believe Rachel's a little older than me maybe 17 18 I believe Kurt is a grown up you know he's probably an old man in his 20s um Brian <laughs> you know like and 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 Brian's maybe a little older than that Brian is and 30 I was, according to yeah, the same yeah. bible yeah I be, I believe Brian's 30 I believe Kurt's 25 27 you know i would have sworn megan was 25 and just naive but i would have never read her as a literal teenager yeah i always read her as the same age as kurt like you know 23 25 something like that because that's part yeah. of what they have in common whereas brian is older and that's part of what is sort of right. the conflict between them yeah brian's a little too worldly for her and she doesn't know that he doesn't know that kurt was more emotionally on her level even if he was more worldly as well still i never would have read her as that young yeah i think okay so two things the first thing i would say is that if people were familiar with the captain britain mythology where she's literally been kept in a trailer her entire life life mm -hmm. that makes it more senseful that she's that young right because why would she otherwise be still with her parents at that time and then the other piece for me is and this is a problem i've had with claremont with the the kitty colossus relationship we've talked about that 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 argument that there's a difference between actual age and like maturity is mm -hmm. used to justify kitty colossus a lot that yes. argument has to go in reverse even if yes. Megan is in her 20s, she is way too emotionally immature to be in the kind of relationship that she's in with Brian, in my Absolutely. opinion. Absolutely. Well, isn't that sort of like a holdover from, this is an Alan Moore creation, and Moore sort has of. some messed up relationships in his his work what was it top 10 where you know he wrote a story where you were trying to root for a brother and sister to get together and they did by <laughs> the end of the story he just had some really goofy um relationships i mean he did the lost girls miniseries yeah. so it's almost like yeah she was that young and then it seemed like claremont and and davis were trying to sort of age her up and not really mentioning the age too much and yeah. drawing her a little bit more mature because they were just you know heck obviously and i know claremont's talked about how he how much he loved a lot of the the alan moore writing of captain britain and he wanted to include moore's characters i mean vixen uh who i don't even know we haven't even spoken too much about that was a classic uh more creation during that mm -hmm. run claremont wanted to play in that sandbox but you know there was some, yeah, some but... uncomfortable things in the sandbox as well my, my thing with claremont though is, and i'm a huge claremont fan and andrew you'll you'll probably back me up here i love claremont but he is not a slave to continuity like we've talked about kitty's age kitty is as old as claremont wants her to be in that moment and the consistency be damned if it has to be and not just him other writers as well right like uh it's the franklin richards problem franklin richards at this point in comics i mean is literally being written as a 12 year old in fantastic four and a six-year-old in power pack the same month frequently it makes no sense it's just that one writer wanted one writer needed him to be younger and one writer needed him to be older and that was happening routinely in the 80s it didn't make any sense so i don't know why you would keep her young if i and i and to be fair it's not really mentioned and i didn't notice it in 1988 i didn't know it until until andrew mentioned it earlier today but it makes it even creepier that she's that young yeah i think if you come back to again her power set though right the idea that mm -hmm. she's this, this emotional metaphor empathy empathic metamorph sorry the idea that brian's vision of her would be aged up beyond her maturity level that makes sense and is sure. again contributing to the creepy factor in an enormous mm -hmm. way but i think claremont is at least very conscious of her immaturity and her vulnerability as we see in this issue which is why we don't root for yeah them. i think megan is a very subversive character that's why I don't read her as the cheerleader. I think it's Claremont's commentary on how women are sort of sexualized to a maturity level beyond their existence as a result of domineering men. 
uh, I, I didn't read that, that as a cheerleader kid. Is? That's how I read it now, right? Isn't that what the cheerleader trope is, though? I mean, the cheerleader is arguably, yeah, you could argue designed to be sexy to men. Yeah, it, high school cheerleader. Yeah, it's when we've been having these. I, I'd never really thought about sort of my opinion about whether Brian and Megan should end up together, only because it had seemed to me reading it like it was so obvious that they would, and I knew from other comics that they did. But I mean, the more we've been talking about it, and it's just like I feel like we're really going to turn our listeners off of this relationship because of like <laughs> just bringing up this stuff with her age, and you think about because you start to think about the mm-hmm. implications there you know she's aging herself up to be like a version of him that he's comfortable yeah. with and you're just like oh minefield 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 they can't possibly end up together if that's the context and we're going to talk about the evolution of their relationship but uh, yeah it's hard to get past some of those things but we will debate how how effectively some of the issues with megan's identity get dealt with moving forward i mean there's lots of stuff that i wanted to ask you guys but i mean is there anything oh, that we that, yeah anything that i was just going to ask anything that we haven't talked about that you guys really want to talk about because there's so much more that we could this is the first appearance of the excalibur sexy pajamas oh yes let's <laughs> please talk about their pajamas <laughs> i have an interest oh, in sorry. x-men pajamas <laughs> i didn't have a thought beyond that oh okay <laughs> well yeah like rachel showing up in these sexy pajamas is a thing and like um megan too i mean not really surprising for either of those characters although we see with megan we'll see in future issues she kind of even adopts sexier and sexier pajamas trying to kind of like please brian i am disappointed that kurt is in his uniform in that scene because that feels like a missed opportunity because he's also got some sexy pajamas throughout night throughout um excalibur but <laughs> well well he did earlier we saw him in the ro- we saw him in, yes. his, in his robe after his shower last like That's i right. actually like that he is because kurt is you know, the conflict here is Kurt is doing calisthenics yeah, yeah. At, the crack, at the crack of dawn, which irritates Brian. It also, I mean, yes, he's only he's only exercising, but it like leads to questions about how soundproof their 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 home is for other reasons. As you know, you were talking about the the domestic. <laughs> sphere. Yes, I've thought about but, that definitely. <laughs> yeah, but but clearly, if you can hear him doing his cartwheels, then you can hear sex. Yeah, like mm-hmm. you know, if like that's clearly a problem in their home. Um, I might have thought yeah, about the... that, written about it into a fan fiction at some point. You know, whatever. Like who's who's who's, who's, who's keeping track? <laughs> Again, I, I think of this as not so much, um, not not so much even the sexiness, uh, other than the fact that this is just how that is naturally how I would expect Megan to sleep would be in one of Brian's t-shirts. I would expect um, Rachel to have more sexy clothing than Kitty does for sleeping because she does for walking around during the day too, right? So, so I I get that, and I think this is the the thing where again you go away to college and now you're suddenly sleeping in this room with somebody you don't know and then everybody on your floor you know oh it's it's bedtime so people are just going to be in their pajamas it 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 does make it very natural even if there is like an implied sexuality about the way they dress but they're sexual characters which is one of the things that we find interesting about the sh- about the 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 book why we did the show yeah well, one of the one of the really things i really found interesting and it was already becoming established this was the rachel was a character who had been around for a while going back to she had the what was it the small role in um the the days of future past days of future, days past. future past and she had never been presented as a, a particularly attractive character before she wasn't somebody who her sexuality was a big part of the character and then when she comes to Excalibur and Davis, all of a sudden, really, you know, gave her the skin tight red outfit. And uh, when she would dress in her, her civilian clothes, the short skirts and making her an overtly sexual character. But it was also a weird thing because it wasn't like she had she dressed sexy, but she wasn't a man eater. She wasn't on the prowl or anything like that. You, you rarely saw any sort of romantic entanglement. It, it took a while before you, you, they even entertained the thought of a romantic entanglement for Rachel. She was just somebody who, as drawn by Alan Davis and not not as drawn by John Byrne. I mean, John Byrne, oh, she yeah. looks sort of like a middle-aged woman. And then John <laughs> Romita Jr. drew her as... A teenager. Annie Lennox? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And all of a sudden it's like, okay, no, we're going to give her a bigger bust size and a really skin-tight costume. And that's going to be her thing. It, it was, it, you were starting to see that more and more by this point where it's like, okay, she's a little bit of the sex bomb, but like an unknowing sex bomb who would dress sexy, but just because she liked dressing sexy, again, she didn't have a boyfriend. She wasn't searching for the boyfriend. She never said, it's like, oh, I got to hit the bar. So Anna, I you're home with a guy. Anna always calls her untouchable just because of the spikes and everything, right? Yeah. Mm. And I even see, 
something like her sexy pajamas here is like conveying a little bit of untouchability just the way she like stands and moves in that outfit too she's so different from megan in terms of posture and and body language so much goes on it's i mean again we're a bunch of literary nerd geeks on a podcast but like just to even just analyze like sit there and just think about what you're conveying from because i said you call them pajamas there is no doubt in my mind that megan is sleeping in i i mean i think that's brian's tank top i think that's how it's yeah. supposed to be yes it clings to her yeah. but i don't think it's her well, shirt I he's think not she's... wearing a shirt so yeah yes so that's <laughs> yeah that's brian's tank top and but he never wears a shirt when he's at home we've seen him yeah. like this before like he has tank tops in his size for her you know um and i and i do think that these are these are rachel's sexy pajamas when we last saw her before Excalibur, you know, she was going to the body shop to remake herself. And I think this is even without maybe being non-sexually active. Sure. But this is her, you know, this is a girl who grew up in a Holocaust, essentially got to be a superhero, got to be a slave again, escape from that. And this is her trying to establish who she is on her own, I guess. You know. Yeah, and I can I can right. accept that about it too. Cause I mean you think about like these are very like fashion-y pajamas too. She's got like these silk fashion-y mm-hmm. pajamas, and you definitely mm-hmm. see some experimenting with identity going on there. Andrew, any last things that, that you want to bring up that you're desperate to talk about? We didn't really talk about sort of some of the world building. Like we didn't talk about, you know, we see the portal in the basement emerging again, and we see the first appearance of dinosaur Excalibur, who will come back in a big way. <laughs> I just briefly, I would point out, I really like in this issue that Claremont is actually doing two independent foreshadowings towards these abstract science mm-hmm. fiction stories. And mm. you, you might even read them as they must be linked and they're not. Yes, it's true. Yeah. So we have the <laughs> thing really like with the portal to Saturn 9 and the widget robot who's still not named. Um, and then we have the other one with the portal in the basement. Yeah, and you're right. Those are not like directly linked. I thought they were at the time. Yes. Yeah, but, but but they're not addressed for a while. So, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't know. My only one thing and it's like just a little thing. But, you know, just getting back to like our constant praise of Alan Davis's art. That panel where Kurt is hugging Megan in the rain and like yeah. such good body work there in terms of the way he does sort of Megan sort of reverting into her other shape and then he does Kurt curling his tail down his leg. It's just a really, really wonderful panel. I could look at that panel all day. I, I would point out in, in that panel, the panel before, I love that she's reverting you don't really quite yes, see her face. Yes. You know exactly what's going on. You know that she has these other forms from the previous issue, uh, previous couple of issues, or any previous appearances that you might have read if you've read the British comic. Mm-hmm. But if this is your first issue of Excalibur, you have just enough of her face, and you see her ears change in the in the panel before. So you have just enough of her face to know that she's turning into something that she considers hideous, but you never actually get to see it. It's you know like it it gives you the emotion of her embarrassment by it and her trust in Kurt to like lean on his shoulder for it without like really sort of revealing the transformation, which I think is interesting. It makes it more visceral for me. Yeah. And I mean, that, that she even semi reveals that transformation to Kurt sort of speaks to there being a possibility of a bond between them. That is sort of, you know, a bond of empathy and difference. Right. Uh, when I think of Excalibur, even more than Chris Claremont, I think of this as Alan Davis's book. Yeah. Is there any other artist that really becomes associated with this? Because I'm thinking of, uh, what was it, recently they had um, a Scarlet Spider series where Mark Bagley did the first six issues, and then they just bounced around from guest artist to guest artist, and it, it really hurt the series because it didn't have that artist identity with it. Aside from Alan Davis, is there any other artist that you think of uh, when when you think of this series, uh, any other like permanent artists who really sort of made an impression? Because it, it really feels like Alan Davis's book, and when you lose his art, you lose so much of the the story's identity. I mean, that would be a bigger question for me about the two different eras of the book, you know, like this sort of classic era and then the post-Davis-like era, which is quite a different era. And I do associate certain artists with that era, but I mean, a lot of people don't even think about that as classic Excalibur because, you know, someone like (laughs) Chris Paccio or something was like drawing it then. And I didn't hate his art as an example of late 90s art, but um, it's so different. And I don't think if I think about you know, what Excalibur is, you know, I mean, we've been tweeting about the show and some, you know, all of the images that I pull for Excalibur are always the Alan Davis ones, because those I think are the ones that people think of when they think of Excalibur. Mm-hmm. It's a different book. I mean, and I think it's yeah. an interesting book, but it is uh, it, particularly fast forwarding to what's going to happen in the future. He's going to leave and then come back. 
And I think that's where you really see how definitive mm-hmm. he is to the identity. I th- I would say more so than Claremont. To me, mm-hmm. uh, I agree. It's, it's, it's a Davis project, which he's not writing. He's not officially writing right now. Claremont's officially writing it. But it does feel like he is part of the DNA of it to me. Yeah, so I agree. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, we'll definitely talk about that more when we get to the get to the Alan Davis written and drawn issues. Um, Brad, before we completely wrap things up, is there anything else that you'd like to plug? Would you like to let our listeners know where they can find you, where they can check you out? Remind them again. Well, again, I am the host, co-founder of the Cosmic Geppetto podcast. It's on all your favorite podcatchers. We talk with uh, very cool people about very cool stuff. Uh, as I said, Anna and Andrew have both been on. Uh, Anna, we, we have you sort of uh, slotted to, to come back soon uh, for something we're very excited to talk about. So, you know, keep an eye on that. And uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Cosmic G Pod. And I'm going to plug something that I don't have anything to do with. Go for but, it. Uh, you guys came onto my radar because of uh, author Travis Smith, yes. who was the author of a very good book called Superhero Ethics. So after you read Super Sex, you should read Superhero Ethics, 10 Comic Book Heroes, 10 Ways to Save the World. Which one do we need most now? (laughs) Uh, Travis is a heck of a nice guy, and I'm a big fan of his. Uh, He is a big fan of Anna and Andrew's. Uh, I don't know if I shared this with you guys, but after the episodes that you appeared on, Travis made a point of uh, messaging me about how great you guys did. And uh, (laughs) so I recommend everyone check that out. So Superhero Ethics by Travis Smith. Can confirm. I know Travis, and he's a good guy. And I've been meaning to ask him to come on this pod, so we'll we'll keep the we'll keep spreading the love around. Did you just did 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 you just drop a letter, Kenny, on me? Can confirm. <laughs> I, I okay. There's certain letter Kennyisms that I feel like are Canadianisms that I was saying already. So I don't think that yeah. I took that from letter letter Kenny, but I yeah. I actually just had Sonia Bennett, who wrote, has written a couple episodes of Letter Kenny on the Cosmic Geppetto podcast. So oh, cool. I've been like getting up on all my Letter Kenny. Uh, so it just when you said can confirm, it's like, did that just happen? Is that? Did, I feel what? like that's probably just my Canadian slipping out, but <laughs> either thing is possible. But um, I we will wrap it up there before this becomes a Letter Kenny podcast, which you know would be a thing that we could do also. But anyway, I'm really losing the thread of this. Batwing, snake skin. Is this all you've learned, Morgana, to deal in potions and petty evil? And where have your meddling arts brought the world? To the edge of ruin. I'm worn thin and threadbare. I've tried to guide men or meddled in their affairs as you would have it for far too long. The time has come. I think we will wrap things up there next in one week's time. We'll be on to episode four in which we will be discussing Excalibur number four, still crazy after all these years. It features perhaps my favorite Nightcrawler scene of all time. It's a lot of competition, but it's definitely up there among other things, I'm sure, including the return of the crazy gang and Arcade, who's always a reliable good time, although not according to Andrew, possibly. Well, we'll talk about that. In the meantime, (laughs) if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it. Or if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for future episodes we're open to that let us know you can reach out to us via our website goshgollywow.com where we've got some fun extras or via twitter at goshgollywow where we'll be posting daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras thank you andrew and mav for another stupendous conversation thank you so much brad for being our very first guest legendary immediately thank you all for listening and a special thank you to maximilian of thought for music for our truly epic theme song play us out 